0: Welcome to the City Point Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Every day is an opportunity to take hold of. So we hope this message inspires you and builds your faith, that it helps you have more of a God perspective for your day. Enjoy. John 13 verses 34 to to 35. I'm actually going to start from 33 today. It's not going to be on the screens, but if you have a hard Bible, you can read it with me. It, uh, It says this, Children, I am with you a little while longer. This is Jesus talking about this moment that he's he's going to go through this ordeal of crucifixion and then he's going to be taken up to heaven. I'm going to be with you a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. So these are like his final words, right? I'm going, you can't come with me. And then he says this, I give you a new command." Out of everything that I've taught you, out of all the, the prophets and the law and everything that I've taught you, because he was a great teacher, he now says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everyone will know that you are the church of Christ. Everyone will know that you represent me if you love one another. That's what I want to camp around today. There was these two professors of psychology, one was Mike Morrison, he was from the University of Illinois, another one, Neil Rose, from uh, the School of Management, and, and also in Illinois, and they did this national survey of America, documenting the major regrets and celebrations of human lives. What, are, what do people feel most deeply about, in a positive way and in a negative way? What do are, what are people carry through their lives, these deep regrets and disappointments, and, and what are the highs of life that they carry? And while it did differ slightly between men and women, on the whole, both things, regrets and celebrations, were deeply centered in relationship, that the biggest regrets of life were often relational in action, things people should have done but didn't, or things that were missing from their lives relationally. But also the highest highs, the mountaintop moments of people's lives, were also relationship moments as well, the fullness of life that's experienced between people. And this probably comes at no surprise that relationships and our love for one another or lack of love for one another impacts a human being significantly. In fact, most significantly. We can see in the most connected yet loneliest time in human history in our world, We can see that it would be, I'd be confident in saying that the quality of life that you have is dependent on the quality of your relationships. This is what we're seeing in people's lives right now. They can have everything, have all the stuff, but if their relationships are lacking, if that deep connection's lacking, if all they have is Instagram intimacy, then their life still feels like it sucks. (laughs) And so the quality of your life is dependent on the quality of your relationships. Nothing brings higher highs. But nothing causes you to experience lower lows than that. And any anthropologist, secular or Christian, will tell you the same thing. But the Bible takes this far deeper than any secular study i found has. And so today I want to just paint this foundational picture of what it means to be part of a powerful church. Because it starts with this. The Bible says that these three things that will remain forever, faith, hope, and love, These great things that will endure on the other side of death. But the greatest of these is love. Greater than faith, greater than hope, the greatest is love. And I wanted to preach into this today because as the world has gone through a, a global trauma in the last past years, we can rely and see some of the great aspects of God. That God is the one who will carry us through and sustain us. He will hold our faith. He is here. And we know that part of God now we've been believing for great things there's also as well and and what I've seen in this season is people who have been influenced by their circumstances that yes you know I'm not experiencing these great breakthroughs but I'm here God's going to carry me through but they've stopped believing for great things in their life because maybe God hasn't got these great things for us right now maybe he's just he's just getting us through and I've seen this, and this has been a cycle of faith that happens. And you know, in, in past generations, they had you know, these crazy wars that went on. And that affected generations of people in regards to their faith that they knuckled down and got through. And God would provide for them. He would sustain them. But would they really believe for great things again? And, and sometimes we know that God is our healer and he is our savior and he is our sustainer. But today I want to remind people that God loves you. That he wants great things for you, that he really loves you. And, and we know the words, but if our experience is shaping us, that we've gone through different traumas and losses, through COVID, through separations, through hardship of living and living expenses, sometimes sometimes there's this gap that we know God loves us, but we're seeing that all he does is really sustain us. They see that even though I'm broken and crushed, yeah, I get that he'll sustain me, but does he love me enough to give me the desires of my heart? And I want to look at that scripture today. A new command I give you love one another, just as I has loved you. How central is this? And my title of the message today is simply this I'm loved, so I love. I am loved, so I love, and that order matters. We have to remember that everything that what we believe about love is constantly being shaped. Discipleship is not something that the church owns. In fact, I'm convinced the world is discipling better than the church at the moment. You go past a bus, you go onto a movie, whatever it happens, you are constantly being discipled by the ways of the world, especially in things that are around love. You look at any rom-com, it always ends. They go through these situations, then they get married or end up together at the end and live happily ever after. Discipling people, and as I go through marriage counseling with people, this, uh, they call it this um, idealistic distortion, which is rose-colored glasses that people have on, that if they can just get to the marriage day and get, and get married, get through the wedding, then everything's just going to be okay. And any married couple, I see people shaking their heads like, no, that's not how it works. But that's what people have been discipled about, what relationships are, that you get to the wedding day and then everything's all good. It doesn't matter about all the addictions you had before. It doesn't matter if you know, the men in the relationship were looking at things they shouldn't on the internet. Once you get to the wedding day, it all changes, right? That's that's not how it works at at all. And we've been discipled on what love is. I can throw out some some statements and people will be like, that sounds like a good description of love. Uh, And I I googled some of the most well-known ones. Love is an intense feeling of deep connection. Love is like sinking into a warm bath at the end of the day. Love is accepting a person for who they say they are. Love is a strong feeling of warm personal attachment. And why we might look at those and be like, I don't think there's anything really wrong with those statements. Over time, our definition of love has become entirely subjective. And what I mean by that is, I'm in love, right? People say this, I'm in love, but now the love has faded, and so now we are no longer in love. I felt this way, I no longer feel this way, and therefore we must no longer be in love. Subjective, it all depends on how you feel about circumstances. And there is a danger now with the subjective nature of love, because love forms the foundation for any healthy relationship. Friendship, romantic, whatever, it is based on love. And when a foundation is subjective, they're not made out of concrete but of sand, and any relationship can wash away at any moment. And this is what we're seeing in many of our relationships. Romantic relationships have desire as the foundation. Uh, affection based off want. Friendships are more based off shared opinions now. People are like, oh, you believe what I believe about this triggering point in society, so maybe we can have a relationship based off that. Usefulness. You have friendship circles where you're based on because they can get you something, or they have information, or they can... uh, Relational usefulness. And again, these things are fine, and they're present even in the Bible, but the Bible does paint a different definition of the foundation of love, which I think society has taken its eyes off. And as the church, we just cannot. Thank you. Because in the Good Samaritan story, if you remember this story, there's a Good Samaritan story, and uh, Jesus is painting the picture of what it means to love your neighbor. What, what is the definition of love for somebody? And the Good Samaritan story goes like this, that there is um, someone walking down the road, and he gets beaten and robbed and left in the gutter. He's going to die without assistance. And we see the religious people of the age walk down and see this person. We see a priest and a steward of the temple walk down. And every time they see the hurt, and for reasons which may have been justifiable, like they didn't want to get danger themselves, it would make them ceremonial unclean, those kinds of things, they cross to the other side of the road. But the Good Samaritan comes down, someone who had an amenity with this person, who they, they weren't friends, they were enemies... He takes it upon himself to pick this man up, to put him on his own donkey, to take him to the inn, to dish out financially, to make sure all the care that he had was there. There is zero warm feelings in this relationship. There's more cold feelings than warm feelings. There is zero relationship at all. Yet Jesus says, which of these persons loved the neighbor? Which of the person? And they defines love in this moment by that interaction between two strangers, so, what really then is the definition of love? See, the world reframes love to mean desire. But the Bible says that love is the intention and accompanying action for someone else's good. Intention and action for someone else's good. Because if you reduce love down to your desire, all your relationships are going to eventually suck. If you reduce it down to the level of desire, to that subjective feeling in here, only, and people say this, good vibes only. We hear that as well. It's on people's walls, right? Good vibes only. And people reduce relationships to good vibes only. You know, we'll hang out when good vibes only. And when there's good vibes going on, when there's bad vibes that we can't, I can't handle it, can't be around it. But we copy paste that into our relationship with God. Good vibes only, God. Keep me living on this mountaintop. When we're down in here, if we have the God of the mountaintop, but we don't accept the Jesus who walks in our suffering, then your relationship with God is only going to go through, only going to be there when things are going well. And when things are going bad, it bottoms out and you wonder where he is. Oh God, you mustn't be victorious. You mustn't love me because here I am in the valley and I haven't been taught how to walk with Jesus through suffering. The definition of love, intention, and accompanying action challenges our way of life. It goes against all the mainstream ideas of love. Because when your love is closer to desire, love isn't dependent on you. When your love is closer to desire, it's dependent on how everything makes you feel, the affections of others. How does this make you feel? And the way that you feel can be governed by outward circumstances. How, If circumstances change, you might feel a little bit different. Can you imagine if my love for my wife was shaped on all the outward circumstances, that she would only love me, right, if our house was good, and if our car was good. What kind of a shallow relationship is that? You know, we call people like that gold diggers, you know, they're, 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 they're not, that's not who we need in relationships. Relationships cannot be based on the affections or just desires or how external things make us feel. That's why a marriage is a covenant relationship. That is not a covenant that I've just made with my wife, but also with God, saying, no matter what happens, no matter how I feel, no matter if the love's gone or the warm and fuzzy's gone, I have made a commitment to stay with that woman. And regardless of anything else, that is happening. See, that is actual love. That is true love. It shouldn't have to be called a covenant, but it is. It is intention and accompanying action. And it doesn't sound as sexy as what the Hollywood love makes it sound. But this love endures. And this love, great things can be built on. And if we want to be a church, if you want to be a church that reaches suburbs, if you want to be a church that needs to blow out the back wall of this building because there's so many souls coming into it, the foundation must be concrete, not sand. And every foundation must be built on love. There's two obstacles that I have found. It's my daughter's waving to me. Hello, Aurora. (laughs) There's two obstacles that I have found that I want to talk about, the obstacles to human connection. And I want to address these because they exist in the church as well. Exist very much in the church as well. But if we want to be the church, we need to look at these, if they are in our lives, and then deal with them. The first one is this, a distorted love of self. These are the things that are obstacles to you connecting well, loving well with others, a distorted love of self. We often stand on the Bible and say, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, which we've seen. So if I love myself more, then I'll love others more. In the Western world, you don't need to love yourself more. You love yourself just plenty. We love, we love ourselves plenty. There's, there's a parallel here, though. Love, And so you can't have this victimhood where you hate yourself, because if you hate yourself and the bitterness is in your heart, then you're going to be bitter towards other people. But the Bible also has in, in Timothy this, this verse that says, in the end days, people are going to be lovers of money and greed and lovers of self. It's talking about it in a negative tone. So here we see that loving yourself is a good thing because it helps you love others, but loving yourself too much is a bad thing. There's a distorted way that you can do it. Because when you love yourself too much, you're so introspective that everything becomes around you, then Jesus is no no longer the son of your universe, which everything rotates around. You become your universe. And your gravitational pull is not as big as God's. You cannot sustain your world based on your gravitational pull. And so what that does then, if you become the center of your world, you become like a tick, what I've found, in relationships. You know a tick... ...when it gets on a dog and it just sits on a dog and sucks the blood out of it. <laughs> you create this vampiric kind of sphere around your life. And you'll know these people. That whenever you come into their world, it's all about them. They talk about themselves consistently. Here's what's been going on. They'll never once ask you how your world is. What's going on? How can I help? If people are so focused on the self, they make this sphere around them... where it's all about them. And if you walk into their space, their personal space... All you're doing is they'll just suck you into that and just leech off the relationship. When you meet up with them, it'll be somewhere close to them. When you buy coffee, you'll find you've shouted four or five times in a row, waiting for them to offer one, but just never seems to come. It's always pray for me. It's, it's never let, how can I pray for you? It's this love of self, but it's a distorted love of self. It's a, a changed love of self. And this is what the Bible's talking about in the end times. People are going to love themselves. And, and this is the way of the world. People are gonna love themselves. Like when we ask for money for a great project in the church, there's something in our heart that be like, What do you want my money? My money? Where well, we've forgotten that every breath that we've been given is given from God. You see how it's crept into even things in our lives where we, we start to see that we are entitled to everything when really it's all been a gift. Every talent that you have, every gift you've been given, the fact that you can. Play guitar, play drums. You act like we're, we can act like we're so good at this when every talent we've been given is being given by God. Every breath, every one more day of health, it's all been given by God and we can become so entitled, so loving of ourselves that we think it's, it's all ours. We did this. King Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his pride, I built this kingdom by my might and for my glory. I did it by my might and I did it for me. And we cannot be a church or a people or a person that says, I built my world by my might, I did it, and for my glory. That cannot be the way that we do it. That's a distorted love of self. The second big obstacle and destroyer of relationships in the church that I've found is, is character assassination. Genesis 3, 3 to 5, it says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, said the serpent to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The first interaction what we see here is that the serpent starts to throw doubt on the character of God. Maybe God said that, but, but did he really mean it? God was wrong, and he starts to throw this shadow of a doubt on the perfection of God's character to Eve. He starts to assassinate the character of God to this other person. And it brings about this, hum- this rift between humanity and God. The very first relational breakdown was caused by divine character assassination. Even though God's character was perfect, you can assassinate it. You can bring in something. And, and this is what I see happening in a lot of different relationships. Eve has this moment where a lie creeps into her head, off the forked tongue, off the surface. Maybe God doesn't want what's best for you. Maybe, and maybe you've embraced that too. Well, I haven't seen that prayer answered. Maybe prayer isn't what I've been taught it was. Maybe God doesn't come through in prayer. And these slight little lies creep into our faith, assassinating the character of God. But if we stand on the Word of God, if we have the Word of God there, and these things come into it and talk just one degree off, not 180. They won't be 180. They'll never, a lie won't come in and say, God's actually the devil. It's too far from the truth, right? It'll come in and it'll give you just one degree off. But maybe, you know, maybe Jesus healed in the Bible, but maybe it stopped when he left the earth. You know, it'll come in and just bring this thing one degree off, and it starts to assassinate the character of God, and it starts to make you question, does God really love us then? And that's what Satan has done from the very beginning. You have to be careful of this in your relationship with God, when prayer doesn't get answered the way you thought it would, when provision doesn't come straight away when you pray, when hurt comes. And when you're hurt, and when you're bitter, that's when lies can put down. The bitterness, the, the, your heart is like a garden. It's like soil. And if it's bitter, then lies can grow. But if it's pure, then the truth of God takes, breaks forth. Trust gets eroded when God's character is assassinated. You start to distrust God at his word. And when trust is eroded, faith gets eroded. And when faith dwindles, power dies out. And when power dies out, the intimacy between you and God is gone as well. And this happens in our earthly relationships as well. And take care of this as well, that you aren't assassinating someone else's character in relationship in the church. And outside as well, but also in the church. Gossip, talking behind people's backs. This is the most basic form of character assassination. Friends may may spread false or damaging information about someone. And it poisons them and it poisons yourself because you've spoken it. Sharing personal or embarrassing information that was shared in confidence. Online assassination, which is the world we live in. We live in a world that loves to assassinate other people online. We love to tear people down based off their opinions. Not that We reduce people down to the, to the value of their opinions rather than their identity in Christ. Oh, you believe this, therefore you sit down here on the hierarchy of my value ladder in my heart. And we cannot engage with the society on this level. Even online, if you engage with someone who has tried to assassinate your character online, all you're doing is raising them up to the platform of your life. If you let them go offline, that they cannot hurt you anymore, they leave a cat, they leave a, a triggering comment, they leave something, but don't raise them up to the platform of your life. By engaging with them, chances are good, you're never gonna come to a point where, like, ah, oh, online, we now agree. Let's go our separate ways. Love you, mate. That barely ever happens in an online medium. Whenever someone does that, I always try and meet with them in person. I always meet with them in person. Because online, there's this big gap, a big divide between lives. And to, to bridge that gap, I haven't found great ways to do it. Unless the person is really just wanting you know, answers or to, to explore a reasoning. But most of the time, when there's that bitterness or passion involved the best way to do it, I've always invited people, hey, I'd love to have a coffee with you. I reckon about one out of 30 would take me up on that. And everyone that has, we have ended on a great note. That when you can look in someone in the eyes, the gateway to the soul, you can engage with them as a human being and not just this idea on the internet that you reduce someone down to the value of their ideas. And people are not just the value of ideas, they're not just the sum of their opinions. They are created in the image of God, and not just people in the church. We are, humanity is created in the image of God. We must love them. Passive-aggressive behavior, undermining someone else's self-esteem or making them feel inadequate. So all forms of this character assassination. And importantly, don't assassinate your own character either. A lot of people do this as well. Your internal monologue, what are you saying about people? Do you do something? And then your head you're like, I'm such an idiot. Like, why would I do that? You say, you always do this, you idiot. You know, what's your internal monologue saying about you? Do you assassinate your own holiness because you're so beat up on yourself over this one sin that you kind of keep going around? Do you assassinate the righteousness of God on your life because you just haven't kicked this one habit yet? Don't assassinate your own character either. Speak the truth of God. Pull up your internal monologue. We have the ability to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. This is the, probably the key to the whole thing right here. Who loves first? We don't love first. God loves first. See, humanity, our love, we are the moon to God's sun. In, of us, in and of ourself, we don't have the light. We are reflective of it. Like the moon reflects the light of the sun and that we see, you reflect the kind of love that you've been given. And some people maybe have been hurt since childhood. And I don't blame people who are hurt. Like when I get lashed out upon, I never blame the person. They're reflective of what has been done to them and over these cycles for generations or, or hurt. But, but as Christians, we don't need to reflect what's been done to us by the world. Because there is a greater light. We need to reflect the love of God because God loved us. Therefore, we can love one another. Not we love one another in order for God to love us. That's every other religion in the world. Love each other, then God will be happy with you. That's not how Christianity is. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. While we were still in sin, while we were still against him, while we hated God, God loved us. Now, what should we do for the world? How can we hold anything against anyone else in the world when, while we were estranged from God, He still loved us in that moment? We are to love all people, not because they love us. They won't. Not everyone will love you. Not everyone will think you're awesome. Not everyone will appreciate the blessing that's on your life because of God. You are to love them still. Because God loved you, he gave everything for you, everything to save you, that your soul can be saved, that your eternal destination is no longer estranged from God in hell, but can be forever with him in heaven, in paradise. God loved us. Our love is derivative. The love you bring to your relationships is derivative, it comes from something. If you aren't loving your spouse well, it's because you're reflecting the wrong kind of Love or lack of love to them. We need to realize how much God loves us again. Matthew 5, 43 to 45 says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do not repay like for like, but love those. See, our MO is to move away from different re- difficult relationships in this world. We move away from them. That one hurt me. I'm just gonna. I can put some Christianese language around that. Why I need to disconnect that relationship now. But but with God, we are to hold lives in the tension until they see the wonder of Jesus for themselves. And and so, in this, I want to show you. And I was thinking about this. How do I how do I show people how much God loves for them? How do I show them how much God loves you? And and this is the only way that I could think of in this, for God's extravagant love for us. If I was going to show my extravagant love for my wife, what would prove to her that I actually really truly love her? And um, the keys, can, oh the whole band's here, there they go. They crept up. If, if I was going to prove my love for Ruthie, what if, what if I thought about her every 10 seconds? Positive thoughts, I love my wife, or she's so beautiful, or she's kind, or she's great, or just thanking her. Every 10 seconds, if I could do that every Ten seconds—that would be—that'd be pretty loving of me to do that for her. That'd be like my whole life centered on her. Wait, is way too much. But would that extravagantly show that I loved her? If I could think of her for our whole marriage, being married eleven years. If I thought of her every ten seconds, that might be proof that I extravagantly love her or think about her. Borderline obsessive, I would say. But but that that should be proof. And so. How many thoughts would that be? There, I, I did the maths, okay? I did the maths on this. There are 86,400 seconds in a day. So over 11 years, that's 348 million and 348,096,000 seconds. So that would be 34, 800 thoughts about my wife in our 11 years. And, that, and maybe that's good extravagant love. Now how big is that, how many? That's, that's a lot of thoughts, 34 million. And so I wanted to see how, how many is that in, if I didn't count those in grains of sand. So I did the maths, we can go to the next slide. This is the volume. My mum's a maths teacher, she, she, uh, she's very proud of me. I was a maths major in, in uh, uni for a while. This is the volume, 4 thirds pi r squared, r cubed. We assume, and we assume a grain of sand for this experiment is, is one millimetre wide. Okay, very small. It's on the smaller end. That's this many cubic metres. The total volume for 34,800 thoughts or grain of sand is 0.018 cubic metres, which is about the size of a backpack. That if I was to think of my wife every 10 seconds for 11 years of marriage, I would have a backpack full of sand. That's, that's how much. That's what extravagant love comes out as. And then, and then I find this scripture in the Bible about what extravagant love really is. Psalm 139, and this will be on the screen behind me as well. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are towards me how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the earth. That if if all my thoughts towards her can be a backpack, that all the beaches on the earth, all of them, God has more thoughts about you, more thoughts about you, how much he loves you and values you than all the grains of sand on the earth. He's been thinking about you for eternity. His love towards you has been extended before you were even born. God loves you his thoughts towards you are positive thoughts he thinks you're incredible he thinks you're amazing he doesn't think you're perfect but he loves you his thoughts are not a backpack full if they were i would feel special that someone like that thought about me that much but he's thought about you as all the grains of sand on the ocean that's one beach that's one beach one small stretch even on australia we're surrounded by a beach he must be thinking multiple thoughts per second for eternity about you and he thinks about it forever he loves you he thinks you're wonderful he has a purpose for your life he's calling you into more and from that revelation from being loved like that it doesn't matter who on this world loves me or doesn't love me who talks bad about me or talks good about me when someone like that loves me like that, when thinks about me like that, then what else matters? How could I ever be insecure? How could I walk into a room and, and care what you all think about me too much when someone like that, who gives me my next breath, who, who's given me the great gifts of life, who thinks about me like that? That's how you can walk into every room secure, every relationship secure. That's how, even though you've been hurt before, The relationships have failed before. You can enter into it again. That's how you can forgive and love people who will never love you back. Because someone like that thinks more thoughts about you than time has ever existed. He loves you.